Hello everyone, welcome to Random Encounter 279 or 279. My name is John O'Logan and I am still in Nova Scotia. Uh, yeah, so again, it was a month here. Uh, I'm in my last week. We're recording this on Thursday. I fly back on Wednesday. Uh, it's been a good trip. It was really nice seeing my parents. It was really nice spending some time out at their cottage. Uh, but to be completely honest, I'm ready to go home. There's something about going home that just makes you feel good. And I miss Toronto. And uh, so the second I'm there, I am going to climb into my bed with my pillow and have a lovely, lovely rest. Uh, but for now, I'm still in Nova Scotia, so I still will sound a little bit strange because I'm using my travel mic. Uh, and while I'm in Nova Scotia, I am not alone because I have, to, well, I guess they're not here with me, but they're with me in digital form. I am in, I am in the country, so that's something. That is something. That is something. Okay, so first up, we have Alex. Hello. And we have Noah with us today. Hello. All right, so folks, we are going to be talking about some pretty big games that have come out the last few weeks, uh, one of which is, I don't, how do I put this, the, the DLC to one of the more controversial games that has kind of come out in the last few years. Uh, so Cyberpunk 2077 came out uh, in December of 2020, I believe, and for years and years, it was delayed. We were promised the moon. CD Projekt Red uh, really, really went in on the publicity and building up expectations for this game. And arguably, they didn't work. The game was a buggy mess. It was on Bethesda levels of, uh, oh my god, I can't believe that they released this in this state. Over the last few years, however, through various patch, through patches and things, uh, CD Projekt Red has seemed bound and determined to, I, I guess, fix their flawed product. Uh, and now I haven't played it, but it seems that it was in a pretty good playable state. And with that, they released the DLC, which is Cyberpunk 2077 Phantom Liberty, which instinctively I just call, I, I keep thinking of as the Phantom Hourglass, which is really funny to me um, because th this isn't on the, this isn't on the 3DS and doesn't use a stylus. Um, Not with that attitude. <laughs> Yes, well, God knows if you can't run, if you can't run uh, 2077 on a PC, chances are you're probably not going to be able to run it on uh, last gen portable Nintendo hardware. Uh, although you never know, somebody might do a DMIC. Um So the cool thing about Phantom Liberty is, yes, it is a substantial chunk of DLC, probably about 20 hours or so worth of content, and it adds an entirely new, uh, I guess, neighborhood or district to Night City. Uh, it also actually revamps a lot of the game's mechanics they're considering it cyberpunk 2.0 and uh some of the things like uh car combat uh the way that the police are handled in the core game has been completely revamped uh and apparently it's it's kind of gotten to the point where this should be the game that we got at the end of 2020 uh, and then didn't so Let's talk for a little bit. Alex, you, you recently played uh, Phantom Liberty, and uh, you mentioned in your review that uh, it kind of served as a redemption for CD Projekt Red. Uh, do you kind of agree with my assessment of everything that happened there? Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, yeah, as I kind of start the review saying, like, I, I never played the game on release. I, I really wanted to, um, mm -hmm. but I was one of the people kind of hoping that I'd be able to play it on a last-gen console on my PS4. And um, <laughs> above all else, like that was just the part that they really just 
mm-hmm. completely dropped the ball. Uh, I, I don't even like. I'm really confused why they even wanted to pretend like it would still be able to be played on those consoles. They didn't really give any any warnings that like it, it wouldn't be playable. They still released it. They still expected. Uh, purchases. Uh, famously, uh, it was the first game I think to ever be delisted from the PlayStation Store because of how just how poorly it ran. Um, so that was a yeah. real bummer because uh, I was a huge fan of The Witcher Three, um, as so many other people were. And um, yeah, the, the promise of this game was was great. Um, a lot of obviously it generated tons of hype. Uh, had some trailers that turned out to be like just completely staged and. Uh, just basically like created out of the game itself. Uh, I mean, outside of it, I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that was all pretty rough. Um, so I just stayed away from it. Um, but I finally got a newer console last year. And um, I, I ended up getting it for, for Christmas for my brother uh, last Christmas. So I first played it um, beginning of this year. Uh, so that was after the 1.5 patch, which was kind of, I guess, the beginning of the sort of redemption arc that uh, uh, they started putting the game on. And mm-hmm. um, honestly, like at that point, like technically, um, it was playing really well. Uh, the game looked fantastic. I had very few uh, glitches or like, yeah, just like visual like T poses and n- nothing like that. That was happening of the sorts that you'd see posted online uh, when the game mm-hmm. first came out. Um, but at the same time, I didn't love the game. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought the world, as as beautifully uh, crafted as it was, um, didn't feel substantial. There wasn't much to do. I never felt incentivized to kind of get out of my vehicle and start like exploring things hoping that i'd find something interesting and and unique and emergent from that world um so i just sort of you know the the open world was just this kind of empty space and i was going from from spot to spot uh doing quests which some of them were were fantastic like pretty much all the main quests were like real highlights that um were quite memorable and and pretty much on par with what they've done with Phantom Liberty, uh, but it was all surrounded by a bunch of kind of uh, hit hit or miss side quests, and um, above all else, uh, just combat and character building that just wasn't fun to engage with, um, mm. in my experience at least. Well, in the review, you refer to this as an identity crisis, where at its core, uh, I guess when it's at its best RPG self, uh, it is incredible. It has, you know, amazing set pieces, some amazing environments and uh, some really, really great quests. But at the same time, there's a lot of generic triple uh, A open world, well, crap uh, that comes with mm-hmm. it. So it seems to be wanting to be two things at the same time. And while it succeeds in both, it kind of makes each one a lesser, if that makes sense. That makes perfect sense, and that, that's exactly how I feel about it. Um, yeah, like um, the the at the the game's strongest points, you're kind of like fully immersed in these these very cinematic like situations, and, and the quests will like mm-hmm. take you from things like talking to like an NPC about like setting up what you're gonna do, 
with the mission, talking like with a group of, of people. Uh, they, they all have like interesting potential motivations and you're kind of making little dialogue choices that feel meaningful. And that mm-hmm. kind of ends up escalating to these bigger, uh, more dramatic and bombastic set pieces that, that are just like really involving and genuinely like impressive. Like um, the way this game kind of like just feels like that kind of hollow deck ideal of mm. like being like really like first person immersed in the moment uh, at its best is just uh, a thing a thing of beauty uh, a real real achievement mm-hmm. um but then you you end up encountering some like clunky design stuff some unsatisfying combat and and that that satisfaction ends up just dropping off as a result i understand and i mean i i'm not going to lie i sometimes i really do enjoy the triple a uh, open world stuff like i enjoy games like that sometimes um and i think based on your review and based on what i've been hearing about uh, phantom liberty this title does address some of your critiques there uh, about it it feels like well okay for example you you describe phantom liberty at its core as a spy thriller uh, so tell me a little bit about the narrative focus of this game. Yeah, so so this is really where uh, they just they just had it figured out. Um, mm-hmm. they, they it's clear that they realized that the the main missions like that really like carefully crafted uh, dramatic work what was the the highlight of the game and what what mm. it what made it really special. So Phantom Livery d- doubles down on that. Uh, takes place in a much uh, just like a new small sector of Night City that you don't really have to leave. Uh, at many points of the expansion at all. Um, so it's like a really condensed mm-hmm. environment and uh, you're, you can basically just go from uh, like main quest to main quest, just experiencing these these peak highs. Um, and, and what that, that quest is about is this sort of more uh, spy espionage type, type uh, story where you're engaging with these, um, uh, the, these FIA agents of the NUSA, basically the, the new United States of America and their version of the FBI is what's going mm-hmm. on here. And um, yeah, the, the, these characters are great. Like another thing that, that CD Projekt Red has, has excelled at with, with the Witcher series before this uh, has been like their characters and how, how believable they feel, um, how uh, interesting and nuanced uh, the, the interactions you have with them are. And, they usually get some uh, good actors too. Oh, absolutely. And the actors they got this time around, uh, Idris Elba kills it. Uh, re- really good work from him. And um, uh, the, the Songbird and Alex and, and the different supporting casts are, are also just, just great. And um, where this kind of like uh, excellence at character development uh, meshes with this kind of spy vibe really well is that like um, as you're getting to know these characters and they're kind of drawing you into... Uh, their world and their kind of uh, what they have to do. Um, you're kind of like seeing like so, some tension between them and they, they all have like a history with each other. Um, mm. And they're all kind of like keeping things from you uh, and not necessarily like a super um, uh, like, like not, not in a way that that feels like uh, they're deliberately trying to manipulate you like, like, but, but in a way that they, uh, that, that makes them just like seem a little bit suspicious, and that even though you're you're getting to know them and they're likable, that you don't really know exactly mm-hmm. what's going on throughout. Uh, Everybody has their secrets. Story. Exactly. Yeah, and because of that, I imagine that there are quite a few more uh, shades of gray in this particular DLC. Uh, that really, I mean, there's not a lot. I've gathered this from your review and from some other uh, sources that there are 
cynical is not the right word, but it's it's a it's a dark. I don't. I guess there's just not a ton of hope here. Yeah, d- definitely not a ton of hope. Um, all the the character situations they've all been kind of like screwed in the past. Some of them mm-hmm. have even screwed each other. Um, Figuratively and, and literally, I imagine. <laughs> I'm not sure about the literally, but definitely the figuratively. Um, and uh, what? Yeah, That's so- ridiculous. City Project Red. We want Edris Elba in a tub. That's what we want. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess that's the one thing. Uh, if anything, if like you loved the the thirst factor that that was in The Witcher Three, <laughs> and and a lot of like the cyberpunk base game as well. That there's not much of that here. They're they're, they're focused on just like uh, mm-hmm. uh, the the shadiness and, and the, the darkness and the mystery behind uh, these characters and their motivations and mm. this plot. Yes, I hear there are fewer sex toys in this newest version of the game. Yeah, yeah, f- for the best, I'd say. Um, that, that was another <laughs> one of my complaints with uh, the base game, uh, was just this this tonal awkwardness that would come off with like some of the side quests, some of the, the writing, uh, when like this kind of more uh, anti-corporate, uh, deliberately like political uh, themes of like cyberpunk that they're clearly like drawing from, from like literature and all that. Um, just kind of like meshed really awkwardly with like GTA style like toilet humor, and mm-hmm. um, thankfully, I, I think they they really uh, ditched that that tone of the base game a lot and just went for like uh, just hard spy thriller storytelling, which which works to the game's benefit for sure. Good. Well, let's talk a little bit about the new setting. So it's set in Dogtown, which is a a new area, a new district uh, of Night City. Uh, what makes this area a little bit different from the other districts of Night City? Uh, so one thing is just that it feels, as a player, at least I felt a lot more incentivized to actually just get out of my vehicle and actually see what's going on and drink in the atmosphere and spend some time uh, just, just seeing what this place is about. Um, like I said, like because Night City itself was so big uh, and so insubstantial uh, mm-hmm. with, with like encounters and um, events uh, that like, I just never felt inclined to explore it. Uh, but here I, I was constantly just exploring, seeing what's going on. Um, there, there are just like a lot of conversations happening. There's just like, it's like in a really kind of like devastated state mm-hmm. uh, dog town uh, because it's kind of like, uh, like a separated branch. It's like, mm-hmm. uh, uh, led by by this guy uh, Kurt Hansen, who kind of um, used to be involved with like uh, the NUSA, but uh, once he like ended up getting power in this district of Night City, just kind of leaned into that and sort of became its its leader, its sort of dictator. Um, mm-hmm. And his his whole thing is that he um, wants it like Dogtown to be a place where you're like free from the Night City police, where like he and his kind of uh, militaristic squad bar guest. Uh, sort of have your back, but uh, as you see the state of Dogtown, it's clearly not um, working to the benefit of like every person living there. Yeah, well, I mean, the name of the place is Dogtown. It doesn't exactly have the uh, the the high gleaming towers in the sky feel when you're when the district is called Dogtown. Yeah. Um, but uh, despite that, it does seem to be a little bit more, I guess, alive narratively speaking uh, mm-hmm. than. Uh, the rest of Night City. Um, yeah, narratively me- and mechanically, because oh. there's um, okay. there's these two different um, uh, new new sorts of uh, like f- 
little side gig sort of things uh, you can do that are uh, airdrops, which is basically as you're going around Dogtown, uh, suddenly like you're, you'll hear like a whistling from the sky and um, something like crash lands uh, sort of near where you're walking. Mm-hmm. Um, and like a bunch of uh, different kind of like mercenaries and whatnot end up gathering there because they want to, to raid uh, the goods that dropped. Um, so you can go there if you follow like the smoke signal that kind of emits from the airdrop. Uh, you can get into skirmish, and uh, if you get out of there, uh, if you get to the drop first and get out of there alive, then you, you get a whole bunch of good loot that you can use to, to upgrade your character. And uh, the, the other little activity they give you um, is uh, these car retrieval missions that uh, you'll be walking around and you'll see someone standing by like a nice car, and like you've kind of been contracted to. Uh, take these cars and like drop them off uh, for this this dealer and you get really nice rewards for that and that also sort of becomes the gateway for uh, showing you kind of how to engage with the vehicular combat which is uh, um, pretty solid uh, mm-hmm. vehicular combat it's a nice little touch I- I'm glad they included it um, it's not something that I wanted to do that much but uh, I had fun with the little bit I did and got some good rewards out of it good um, how does the DLC integrate into the core experience of the game. Is this a post-game DLC, mid-game? So it's it's mid-game. Um, mm-hmm. So I think you can choose from the menu just to like skip right to uh, Phantom Liberty if like you don't have like a, a save file that you'd want to load up for it. You, I think the game puts puts you up to level twenty, gives you a random character, uh, makes some. Uh, decisions for you of the story up to that point and then just lets you go right into it um yeah you mentioned it's it's a very standalone experience so the fact that they give you that option is well useful yeah exactly um so it it does work extremely well as a standalone story i'll say Um, i know like i think cd project read themselves and like a, a lot of different uh, journalists have been saying that like um, the ideal way is to start the game over and um, work your way all the way up to Phantom Liberty and then uh, experience it and then go back to the base game and get the whole new experience on offer. Personally, I, I don't think that's necessary. Like it, it has been integrated well with the the main narrative from what I can tell with some interesting implications depending on what ending you get in the expansion itself that carries on through into your playthrough and even opens mm-hmm. potentially a new ending to the, the, the main game. Hmm. Um, but other than that, uh, this is just like a really awesome standalone package. Like the, the characters from the base game don't really factor in all the major players are new, uh, newly introduced. Um, the, the pacing is just so much tighter than what I experienced in the base game. Uh, I was so engaged throughout the whole thing. The fact that you're a higher level when you start just means you get to have more fun with the the gameplay right away. Um, so in that sense, I, I think Phantom Liberty as a as a standalone expansion, as a standalone like title itself, mm-hmm. uh, works exceptionally well. Uh, and that if you don't want to start the whole game over, uh, you don't need to. Okay, but just be just to be clear, Keanu's still here, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Keanu's oh, still around. God. Yeah, yeah. He's uh <laughs> just as kind of endearingly deadpan as ever. Um and uh I, I know like some people didn't like his performance in the base game. I thought it was perfectly fine. It's like it's Keanu Reeves. I don't I don't know what, what kind of acting people were expecting. Uh but he made it work really well and uh I just like Johnny Silverhand's just a really cool 
character from like a role-playing perspective because he's got like his own very strict principles and ideals and ideas uh and he'll like appear in during like key uh narrative segments he'll chime in and sort of give you act as kind of like a springboard for you to to bounce your own ideas of the situation off uh so in that sense uh mm. Keanu's really great and serves that sort of interesting narrative purpose as, as well as he he ever did in the base game and also you get some new new character building from him as well because uh uh he, relating to the story he kind of like ends up identifying uh with with idris elba's character in a way seeing him as like some somebody that he could have became and, and that's a really interesting point that gets developed mm. uh you mentioned that it i mean we, we said it a few times this is about mm, 20 hours or so worth of content which to be frank is nothing to sneeze at games do not need to be 100 hours although when you add the dlc into this you're looking at approximately a 120 hour game that's mm-hmm. a lot of game uh so yeah. do you think do you think that the dlc was like in my mind a good dlc this is just my opinion is it's kind of like the main game with all the fat trimmed out it's a very streamlined experience uh so do you think that the game's length that the dlc's length was appropriate for the amount of content that you got absolutely because um the like I said, like in, in the base game, the original release, uh, the main quests and like a couple of the side quests focused on like the main sort of NPCs, the main like potential like romance characters, those were the strengths of the game. Hmm. Um, and here you get um, like pretty much half of this package, I think, uh, is just like the main quest. And all the side content that is there is. Um, for one, like integrated kind of with uh, the story. Like at one point, there's like a bit of downtime where you have to like wait to hear back from one of the characters. And then it's just like, oh, so you, now just do some uh, gigs for the local fixer. Um, uh, so so gigs were kind of like these smaller side quests from, from the base game. Um, but here you kind of like need to like uh, earn his favor to like help you get set up for one of the missions. So mm-hmm. you start doing a couple of those side quests and that ends up being like kind of like a nice little downtime from the kind of more intense uh, main quest while also just being like really good side quests. Like uh, there, there isn't nearly as many side quests uh, and gigs as there were in the, the base game, but all the ones that they did include are, are pretty good quality wise. Well, about the base game, like I said uh, off the top, this is the sec- update 2.0, I guess. Uh, and you say that one of the best ways that uh, CD Projekt Red has, I guess, altered the base game is by uh, putting some new life into the character building system, so, uh, in- including revamped skill trees, things like that, to give the gameplay a little bit more flexibility. Can you go into that a little bit? My god, yes. This was just, <laughs> like I said, like the, the base game just became kind of miserable gameplay-wise. Um, mm. And I, I played the same kind of build uh, that I did in the base game, which was kind of like an intelligence-based build, uh, a netrunner slash like basically like a hacking wizard sort of build, because I thought that mm-hmm. was pretty unique to, to the setting. Um, and basically what that amounted to uh, in the base game was that I'd stand uh, kind of like hoping to get as many enemies in my field of vision as possible, I'd go into a menu and I'd just upload hacks slash spells uh, that mm. would just uh, destroy the enemies. Um, and that was basically what my build involved. Here, uh, because the... So originally the way character building work is they had these really big 
perk trees with just tons of perks that had very minuscule, uh, insubstantial modifiers to like damage you dealt. Um, and if you invested in some of the, uh, some of those, you ended up getting maybe like a cool new new power related to to that uh, aspect of of building. Um, but here uh, they really streamlined it. Each kind of um, skill tree uh, is now just like three separate branches almost, and each of mm-hmm. these branches uh, kind of have like three um, what I called like uh, core perks. So like these are perks that um, as soon as you invest in them, um, they like immediately open a completely new door to your playstyle. Um, mm. so like, for example, uh, with an intelligence based build, uh, one of the branches is kind of focused on, um, allowing you to do these hack combos that if you, if you queue up your, your hacks, uh, in like kind of a methodical way, you actually end up gaining back some of your, um, I forgot what it's called. It's basically like your magic points, what allows you to, to hmm. upload the hack in the first place. Um, and then like another one is focused on buffing like smart weapons, which are weapons that have like auto lock. Um, uh, so so I ended up ignoring the smart weapons thing because I was less interested in that, but I uh, buffed my hacks a lot. Um, mm-hmm. And then I ended up going into another skill tree for like dexterity, ended up uh, because the, the branches are all separate. I ended up buffing my my sword techniques. So I was able to like to deflect bullets with swords, um, and then I went into to a tech skill point to to get um, uh, proficiency in like tech weapons. Which if I if I charged them and kind of released uh, a shot at the right time, it would have like this crazy AOE explosive electric effect, which was really fun. So I was able to mix and match uh, from like these different uh, skill trees in order to to create a playstyle that was appealed particularly to me essentially um so so that was great mm. and a massive massive improvement from from what was on mm. offer before oh speaking of things that appeal specifically to you um that's actually a point that closes out your review of this game which is uh this this dlc specifically it really did hit you where you lived um it, it really was uh I, I, how do i put this uh it, your cup of tea um with are in the RPGs that have been released this year, which include like Final Fantasy 16, Starfield. Uh, why would you say that? What is, what what? Okay, what kind of gamer do you think this would really really appeal to? So the reason I think this appealed to me a bit more than Final Fantasy 16 or Starfield is because it had like a very uh, clear kind of like narrative focus. Um, it was like mm-hmm. very invested in kind of just this really like immersive storytelling that like really expertly weaved a kind of um, like cinematic storytelling with a lot of like kind of visual nuances and, and little developments mm-hmm. like that. Uh, but also like an, in, like the, the great part of like interactive storytelling, which is um, having these like little interactions with characters, not only making like sort of these big decisions that, that kind of change the course of the narrative, but these kinds of smaller interactions that even though if they, they, don't make an impact. They feel very impactful in the moment because a character is like opening up to you, uh, and how are you going to respond to that? And uh, how does that kind of measure up with what you've been saying to like other characters and things like that? So I just felt uh, really invested in, in the kind of the story uh, that was trying to be told here. I really appreciated how this game uh, didn't need to be this massive uh, experience with tons of side quests, uh, tons of open world, just kind of 
empty space to traverse. I, I just loved the the tightness and consistency of this all. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think it's just uh, like Zelda was great, Final Fantasy was was great, <laughs> Starfield was great, um, but like this, just I want more games like like that could be. Hmm. A full game that that of what this expansion offered, kind of just like a tighter experience, really expertly and lovingly crafted, uh, but not doesn't overstate its welcome and gives you some really interesting uh, narrative pieces to to chew on afterwards. So that that that's why I uh, for me this was probably my my RPG of the year. Well, it would be very very nice. I, I understand that CD Projekt Red has made a little bit of noise that this is going to be the only DLC to come out because they're moving on to the sequel. Uh, for uh, Cyberpunk 2077, which presumably we'll see in 2031 based on their previous timetable. <laughs> um, so it might be a few years, but at some point you might get your wish. Um, speaking of some of the other games that came out this year, like Starfield, for example, uh, recently, Noah, you absolutely plowed through Starfield for us. You really, really enjoyed it. And then as soon as you finished, I was just like, good, now give us more content. Here's Liza P, because you don't get to sleep, apparently. No sleep for Noah. You 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 went from the stars, and you immediately dove into a Souls-like, which is gotta be a just a bucket of cold water in the face. So, uh, Liza P was announced a few years ago. Uh, we got the trailer. I remember seeing it at the time and being like, eh, steampunk Pinocchio, don't care. Um and since then, of course, it's turned out to be, you know, it, it had quite a bit, there was quite a bit of buzz about it. It kept building. I kept getting more and more interested. I think the most interesting thing for me about Lies of P is that it is a Souls-like. And uh, unlike, I don't know, all of the best Souls-like, this one's not designed by FromSoft. Uh, in fact, it is, has nothing to do with them at all. Uh and you describe Liza P as a rare gem in the Souls-like genre. So uh, as compared to, well, obviously, Dark Souls, Bloodborne, uh, the FromSoft games, what would you say sets this game apart from those uh, beloved Souls-like titles? Um, so from the From Software games, I'd say the thing that sets it apart is uh, narrative clarity. Like, I think it has a pretty clear um, thread that, like, puts its narrative together. Um, thread don't you mean string a string <laughs> yeah exactly strings to hold me down <laughs> <laughs> yes exactly um uh, yeah a, a marionette string if you will that that holds its narrative together <laughs> um i i would also say that in some ways it, you know the gameplay is also maybe a, a bit of an evolution but also departure from uh from software games with you know uh a, a semi-reliance on item use and your like gun weapon thing that's on your left arm. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it brings a few new things to the table that um, are in dialogue with what from software is doing, but mm-hmm. majorly set it apart from as from the gameplay of those games. I mean, it's, it's similar to bloodborne and it's like freneticism and it's like, um reliance on aggression but you know you don't get health back when you attack enemies after they damage you um unless you're shielding and you know you do have to guard appropriately sort of like sekiro so it's a bit Mm -hmm. of a mashup 
but it's got some new ideas. Speaking of those new ideas, like you said, I think some of that is uh, the narrative focus of this game. So why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Because, I mean, it's based on Pinocchio. Everyone knows the story of Pinocchio. If you don't know the actual fairy tale, you at least know the Disney film uh, with presumably hopefully the animated version of the live action remake uh, with the little wooden boy whose nose grows when he tells a lie and he only needs to be good and you get swallowed by a whale and there's lots of things that happen. So uh, this game is a twist on all of that. Uh, Tell us what's going on here. Actually in the book, Pinocchio gets swallowed by a shark, but I suppose a whale is, is a decent stand in. Um, Although it does say something that it's a less predatory animal, doesn't it? Um, In choosing a whale. And also a mammal. Um, anyway, yeah, it is based off of Pinocchio. <laughs> it's much more based off of Carlo Collodi's Pinocchio. He wrote The Adventures mm-hmm. of Pinocchio in the 1800s. Um, and it was sort it's sort of a text about like labor and an oppressed uh, lower class. Um, but it's, you know, told in the style of a children's book. Uh, it, it was one of many serialized novels that was in, um, I want to say like a newspaper or magazine or something of the time. And mm-hmm. it had many monthly issues and it was very dark, especially at the beginning. The original ending of The Adventures of Pinocchio is Pinocchio getting hanged to death by the the cat and the fox characters, which are two other famous characters. Um you know, probably the two most famous behind Geppetto and Pinocchio uh, and maybe the whale, I guess, or the shark. Um, but Lies of P sort of makes an homage to this darkness. Uh, I think I think it brings in a lot of those elements of like trickery with the other human characters in the game. I mean, I guess uh, others not correct, but the human characters in the game um you know, there's there's an element of trickery. There's an element of these like working class ideas. Um, there's an element of oppression. And yeah, I don't know. I think that it sort of merges the worlds uh, of, you know, the, the sort of semi-dark movie and in, in the book and, and other media that's come out about it, uh, barring the... Mm-hmm. The one that's that's been memeified a little bit these days. Um, <laughs> Polly Shore, Shore is not yeah. playing the lead in this game. Yeah, exactly. No, you won't have to to, to hear him him say, uh, "Father, what? <laughs> I'm ready to be out on my own." Father, yeah. How much do you want to bet that someone is probably going to take this game and they're going to uh, replace the voice files with Polly Shore? Oh, that would be so funny. Polly Shore is a good voice actor. I don't know why <laughs> it was so like off color either they must must have been paying him peanuts um well let's talk about the lie mechanic i guess because it is lies of peas so historically uh i believe in the book it was only when he tells a self-serving lie Mm -hmm. but in the disney film when he tells a lie it doesn't matter good bad his nose grows so how does lying work in this game for both the story and the gameplay yeah lying is not nearly as morally prescriptive as it is in the in the movie for sure um but it might be a little more so than the book there but it kind of does the opposite thing right the book does have this thing where like lying is sort of related to i don't know your i don't know ability as a person to get like an education um your like character has something to do with that 
in the book, but in the game, you lie in order to like sort of gain entry into places or like get around certain characters, stories, uh, some storylines that characters have in order to finish them. You have to like lie in certain areas to them. Um, and it can also be used to like anger certain characters, which also progresses their stories. Um, and mm. it's also used for a certain item in the game, um, requires lying and, you know, an interesting story can also come of that as well. Um, but it's never really used in like this negative moralistic way. I would even almost argue that the game sort of encourages you, encourages you to lie and almost plays off lies as this, uh, sort of human necessity, right? Like a thing that you do mm -hmm. in order to like spare people from harm or like use, you know, use like a white lie for that or, or use a lie in order to like help yourself get through something that's difficult, you know? I have to admit when I was looking at the game, I was watching footage of it. I was reading a little bit about the plot. The first thing that popped in my head actually was not Pinocchio. The first thing that popped in my head was, wow, this would be really easy to adapt into a Mega Man game. Um, in terms of the character relationships and the overall story, I just thought, wow, I, I bet a lies of R lies of rock would be a, a, a terrific mod for this. Yeah. Or, you know, it could just be Mega Man Legends three and you just have, you know, <laughs> the lost forbidden. Oh, that's depressing. Uh, yeah, it's not happening. I'm sorry, guys. I got it. No, it's not. But I mean, if Capcom was smart, they would think about doing something like that. Because with Mega Man's focus on bosses, there's a lot of crossover between the Souls-like focus on bosses. That could be very interesting. Hundred uh, percent. If they were to ever, if they were ever to dive into that uh, idea. But anyway, uh, so let let's say okay, the game really, really closely adheres to the Souls-like blueprint uh, of Dark Souls, uh, all of the rest. Um, how does it diverge? from that inspiration in terms of its gameplay or does it it does a little bit i mean there are ways that you could essentially do some of the things that lies of peace trying to do with like dark souls things um or elden ring like weapons and items and, and magic etc uh but mm -hmm. the legion arm is probably the the biggest main difference um in my opinion which is you know the sort of gun arm thing that's on your left arm that you use to do elemental damage, uh, which is set up in a, you know, in a rock paper, a familiar rock, paper, scissors, uh, sort of way, mm -hmm. um, where you, you know, you do more damage with poison to human enemies. You do more damage with shock to puppet enemies and you do more damage with fire to, um, the sort of like undead ish enemies in the game. And, you know, like you can you can use your legion arm to do that. Um, you can also use your legion arm to like tag enemies and pull towards them. Um, you can use it to set down mines, which which can be pretty tactical for some of the bosses, uh, especially for staggering, which seems to be also a way bigger thing here than in uh, well, barring Sekiro and any of the other uh, the From Software games. Um, you can also use it for like ranged attack, like, you know, from varying distances. Um, but it has a lot of sort of strategic use 
um, and is worth worthwhile to, you know, put some of your Legion points that you get, you know, like the pieces that you get throughout the game uh, into different Legion arms in order to like have a little bit of variety uh, for approaches. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would also say that it advanced the stat that is associated with Legion arm um, is definitely going to be an underrated one, probably uh, because <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, being able to di- to do deal more damage with some of the <laughs> elemental arms can be so crucial to get past some of the hardest bosses and this game has some insane bosses one of the things that you i guess one of your critiques about the game is traditionally speaking the way that a lot of games handle bosses bosses are a uh a last test they're the they're the final exam of a level that's historically been what a last boss is but in this particular game you point out that uh, the game doesn't adequately prepare players for the boss fights. Uh, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so this is definitely a classic Souls design tactic uh, that dates back to Demon Souls, where like when you run through an area, it throws these small enemies at you that are a little bit of teasers for the boss, and the like weapons and strategies that you use in areas are almost entirely uh, super relevant when you get to the boss fight for that area. Like you'll encounter enemies mm-hmm. that are like super weak to fire the final boss of that area will have like a fire weakness. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. you encounter enemies that like move quickly and try to get around you. The final boss would be like a a quicker human humanoid boss. Um, But lies of P doesn't really do this. In in fact, a lot of the time it won't be anything at all. Like the boss of the the end of the area, you know, like the strategy that Mm -hmm. you use to get there, not relevant at all. And that can be really harmful early on. Because you could be upgrading an electric type like attack so that you can uh, fight the puppet enemies and then you'll encounter an electric puppet boss who is extremely resistant to electricity. And it's like, Mm. ah, you know, you spend all these points in advance and stuff. And because the game doesn't let you like change your character's loadout early in the game like you have to get more than halfway through the game in fact through what i would consider to be the games like smo and ornstein which is famously like the mid you know middle of dark souls one boss that like is the big first uh barrier of of difficulty um you can't you can't Mm -hmm. change your character's thing until after that boss (laughs) in this game and it's really frustrating because Mm. oh man yeah some of those early bosses are are really tricky and you can level yourself to a point where like you're kind of screwed. You may have to start over, um, Uh. which I'm not, not a big fan of. Um, so yeah, there, there are accessibilities in design that you could do to prevent this. And, and my most major critique with this game is that it sort of misinterprets the essence, the soul, if you will, of the souls genre, Mm -hmm. Um, which is uh, Miyazaki's initial design where where uh, he, he wanted to highlight the transience between um, like passing players, like this sort of transient cooperation is how he's designed all of the, the you know, the games in his line at From Software. And it just, it's not here because there is no multiplayer. You can't get assistance on the bosses. And that to me is a bit of a failure of design because it 
it sort of it makes that thing of you know you can screw yourself so bad that you may be better off just starting over like it could alleviate that quite a lot uh to be able to like mm. summon in another person to fight some of the bosses and they give you like a spirit thing that you can summon in but it's not really that useful in the in some of the bosses um so yeah mm -hmm. i don't know well does the weapon customization system help in any way on that? Because this game does have one of the more unique aspects of this. It actually has a fairly deep weapon customization system uh, where uh, you can, well, customize your weapons, obviously, but in a different way from other Souls-like games. Does that compensate slightly for the, I guess, the getting good aspect of it? Yeah, yes and no. Um, it's really interesting. I do love this departure from, from the From Software design that you can, like, you can put a, a hammer head on a dagger uh, handle and, and make it into like a weird fast weapon. Um, love that <laughs> idea. Um, and it, it is helpful, especially early on. Um, I found a like poison dagger earlier on in the game that comes on the end of this like pole arm thing. And I, and I ended up putting a, a fire weapon on the end of that and I just wrecked some of the bosses with this fire weapon that I invented. But the but on the end of that is that the boss weapons in the game are so much more powerful than the re any regular weapon you could make that it's almost like by about a third of the way through the game, maybe about halfway through the game, it, it just becomes unnecessary to even use the regular weapons and none of their configurations oh. are going to be as strong as the boss weapons so wait so so you can't dismantle the boss weapons and build new weapons out no of you can't and i understand that dis design decision and i and i agree with it in a in large part but you know it does it does erase that a little bit mm. um one thing that honestly you and i think everybody else felt was that my goodness, this is a pretty looking game. Um, it does have a, it has an extraordinarily strong art style, some very good looking graphics, some great music as well. The music in this game, I, I listened to some of it, sounds amazing. Uh, what aspects of all of that stand out to you? Oh yeah, this game is like audio visual uh, candy for those who, who like, <laughs> in you know, medieval or Belle Epoque, which is what this is based on, um, which is like 1800s France or gothic or any of that like you're gonna be steampunk if you like steampunk oh yeah this is this is really gonna connect your gears steampunk together idea, yeah. yeah um yeah yeah it'll get your gears turning for sure uh no pun intended there and, but yeah it's beautiful it's beautiful and and uh i think i mean every aspect of it like from just the rain physics and the water and the buildings and like especially the character designs like not just boss designs which are all really cool and unique and uh and you know like ugh, there's, there's just there's there's a few bosses especially in late game where i was just like oh my god i don't want to fight you i just want to like look at you um i just want to <laughs> i just want to see all of your animations um play out and perhaps not be tortured by them having to <laughs> like be beaten down by them a hundred <laughs> times but um yeah just not, not not just the bosses though but also the npcs and even more so pinocchio himself um 
Yeah, it's uh, it's so cool, and this is this is something that Alex, feel free to chime in here about, but uh, sort of a connection between cyberpunk and Lies of P, and an evolution of the RPG genre that has been so long coming that you can change your clothing, your outfit, and fashion souls however you like, and it doesn't affect mm-hmm. your character. That that always drove me nuts, right? This is, it's been this like sort of thing that has existed since the 80s when, you know, I don't know, Final Fantasy and the original Dragon Quest like created the genre. They're like, we need a way for players to be able to spend their money that they earn from battling on something that's useful. And they're like, what can we make? Like, oh yeah, armor. And then that, like, we could upgrade that. It could increment and that could like give them benefits. And it's just like been this like product of RPG design ever since that, that has just fallen down like a, like a boulder, <laughs> you know, through the ages uh, into every role-playing game ever that armor is associated with benefits. And I'm so glad that these new games are transitioning away from that. Yeah, that's that's definitely a great tie-in with Cyberpunk because uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll never forget um, the final cutscene of one of the endings I got uh, when I first did the base game. And, and I didn't touch on this when I was talking about Cyberpunk, but yeah, the, the base game, like, uh, yeah, uh, you had to, like, mix and match your clothing uh not for uh fashion purposes but purely for functional purposes and in this dramatic moment at the end of the base game i was wearing this stupid green hat that looked like kermit the frog was sitting on top of my head as this really (laughs) dramatic conversation was happening between me and keanu and i'm just like this sucks and it just completely took me out of the ending Mm -hmm. um but yeah for for a game like cyberpunk that wants to like kind of emphasize that role playing so much with its storytelling uh getting rid of that uh requirement uh huge huge upgrade and i just got to to trust purely for style this time around and and really appreciated that change i d- i did like the I do think the the armor system makes more sense in dark souls but like by the time you get to like bloodborne where like the the stat differences are like so minuscule it's just like why even like make that mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. tied to stats at that point. Um, so so yeah, I'm, I'm glad that that they did just got rid of that completely for Lies of P because makes sense honestly. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that Pro ZD has a skit about that. Uh, cutscenes here it is. Cutscenes that keep the stupid clothes you put on your character. Um, uh, love Pro ZD. It's, it's one of my favorite. Uh, one of his videos is picking RPG clothes based on max stats instead. It is, it's one of those videos that no matter how many times I see it, it still cracks me up. Okay, uh, one last question for you uh, about Liza P, which is at the very end of your review, you express uh, some eagerness in seeing where the development team, what they develop next. Um, do you hope that they continue down the Souls-like genre, or do you think that they should pivot and try something else? Uh, I mean, certainly the action RPG genre, I think they should be sticking to because it seems to be something that they're mm-hmm. pretty talented at uh, making. But so long as it's moody and has fluid gameplay and compelling systems um, and a fun story, uh, I suppose mm-hmm. I don't really mind if it stays in this in the Souls-like genre, but it would be dope. The character that is sort of teased at the end of my review and also at the end of the game, 
uh, I would love to see in a Dark Souls game. It, I, you know, everybody memefied the like Pinocchio being a Dark Souls game, and I was I, from the beginning, I was like, yeah, that actually sort of makes sense. But this this one would actually be really sort of funny. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I would enjoy it. Okay. Well, uh, I want to thank both of you for coming on to talk about your respective games, but we're not quite over yet. Uh, today's discussion question, it's going to be a little bit different because this episode is releasing on Monday, October 2nd. The next day, October 3rd, is going to be the 30th anniversary of Secret of Mana. So uh, in North America, anyway, um, it would have come out on uh, October, according to Wiki anyway, it would have come out on October 3rd, 1993, which was a long, 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 long time ago. Um, and in honor of this, I guess, we uh, we had a retro review that got posted uh, from RPG Fan uh, from David Silver about Secret of Mana. And uh, spoiler alert, uh, he didn't like it very much. Um, this was a retro review of a game, a, a beloved Squaresoft uh, action RPG that he just didn't really like it. So when Mike and I saw this review, we kind of knew what was going to be coming, and obviously that's fine. It's a reviewer's opinion. We don't censor our reviewers and censor their opinions based on a, how beloved an old game is. Anyway, this it, it caused what could be it could be described as a firestorm on. Uh, Facebook and, and perhaps Instagram as well. Uh, a lot of passionate, passionate arguments in the comment sections uh, about this review and not just about whether or not the review was correct or not. It actually, weirdly, it was people split down the middle, it seemed, where a lot of people were saying, I, this is what I thought for years. This is what I thought when I first played the game. I'm so glad that people are coming around to this. And then a lot of other people who were saying that this is the worst review ever. It's ridiculous. I can't believe that Secret of Mana got a 65. Um, what got me though, and the thing I wanted to talk about here is that there were quite a few people who were saying things like retro reviews should not judge a game based on the current marketplace. It should not, it should not, uh, the scores, the, the point of view, it should not be coming at it from a, a modern perspective. Um, and I have to admit that point of view, I've been struggling trying to understand that idea, and I can't. It doesn't make any sense to me. The idea that, especially if someone new comes to the game who has never played Secret of Mana before, or Final Fantasy VI, or any classic uh, RPG, a beloved RPG from the 1990s, they can't look at the game from the perspective of when it was released. They can't. They can only look at it from their current perspective and how much they enjoyed it and how it lives up to today's standards. A lot of people raised a lot of points about, do we do that with film? Do we do that with books? Like an old film, if that do we watch it? We said, well, obviously, you know, oh, what, what's going on? The, the camera movement is ridiculous. It's very, very static. It's, it's not the subject matter is really... My point is, I'm very curious about your opinions on this. For a retro review, do you think that the reviewer should be considering the time it was released in the final score, or should they be reviewing it based on their unvarnished experience in today's, I guess, today's gaming environment? Yes. I mean, not not only can the reviewer not fully immerse themselves back into the headspace of when any of these retro games first came out, but like, it, wouldn't that like destroy the point of like doing like a revisit, a like review. a retrospective? Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, like, I think retro reviews are a really cool idea that allow us to uh, re-explore some of the classics that that we loved back in the day or that we we missed back in the day, um, and just see the the interesting ways that old school game design um, had like these specific strengths and unique little quirks um, that and how they measure up against modern game design and its own strengths and weaknesses. Um, because like personally, like th- there's a lot to unpack for an older game or a newer game in terms of like uh, derivative design choices on un- uninspired design choices. And, and part of the fun of a retro review is taking a specific title that has like a certain reputation and, uh, seeing how it measures out and, and, and comparing mm. uh, the two types of game design approaches. Um, and, and on that regard, uh, yeah, secret of mana, like it's not, not the best game to go back to. Like I, I played it again. Like I played it as a kid and my, my brother loved it, loved it back in the day um, because it's kind of like a mix of sort of Zelda and like Final Fantasy sensibilities, and those were two of his favorite series, and it looked great, it sounded great, but um, there's been games since Secret of Mana, like its sequel, Second Tetsu 3 slash Trials of Mana, that just does what it does better, Mm -hmm. so in that sense, wouldn't that be the game to get like a higher score, if anything, and then Secret of Mana can be criticized as something that was kind of a stepping stone to that sort of better formula? I don't know. That... That that makes sense to me, at least. Yeah, yeah. I think it's I think it's both, though. I think yeah, you do. You wanna you wanna talk about it in in the frame of today and what it's like for you as a person to like look at a game. But looking at, I don't know, any review that's talking about a retro game is going to be thinking about the time when it came out and sort of like the cultural moment, um, et cetera. And I mean, even David says in the bottom line that it deserves your respect, uh, that Secret of Mana deserves your respect. And it sort of does because it had, you know, it had an audience at the time, but there's there's just no audience for this game this, these days. There are a hundred better titles that have grown so much in this like co-op RPG genre uh, that... I don't know. You, you'd be even better off playing like Boulder's Gate Dark Alliance from like maybe 10 years after this game. And it, I don't know. To invoke uh, the review that, that David wrote, it's, we've come a long way since, since, uh, mm. since this game. And yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think that that's worthwhile to sort of bring this score to a way that is contemporary and talks about the contemporary moment and as a reflection of the time in which he wrote the review because the review is valuable as its own sort of cultural object. Maybe 20 years from now, people will have learned to love the jank of a game like uh, Secret of Mana and love the like edges of the game. And maybe it'll come back up, you know? So I think it has to be both. For me... I mean, coming at it as the review manager, when I read the review, I think there was an undercurrent in some of the comments that this review never should have been published, which is insane. I mean, ignoring everything else, it's a good review. He has points. They are supported. They're his opinion. He's supporting it, and he's providing evidence. It's it's a good review. Everything, he justifies everything 
in the review. And that's what a review needs to be. And more importantly, it's his opinion. Um, and I think it's a legitimate opinion. I'm not going to... Secret of Mana is not my favorite SNES RPG. Squaresoft released some real bangers, and Secret of Mana was almost one of them. Um, but I never loved it the way the other that other games did. Like, if I had to review the game right now, I'd probably review it a little higher than 65, but I wouldn't... It would certainly not be an editor's choice. Uh, and I don't think that's me looking at it not through nostalgia goggles either. I think the game genuinely has some... Uh, some significant issues, even when it was released. It just, I, I can't seem to get my mind wrapped around the concept that these games need to be judged by the standard that they were held at when they were released. That concept to me is just wrong. And when people bring up old movies, I'm sorry, we don't do that with old movies. We we don't watch Casablanca and and judge it by the standards of 1940s. We, we judge it by today's standards. And we do see the problematic elements in it and the things that are not fantastic or the things that did not age particularly well. And we can acknowledge those aspects and still enjoy it. And I think we can do that with Secret of Mana too, because again, it's his opinion. That's, that's what a review is, guys. It's an opinion. And as long as that opinion is supported and it's not just off the cuff or it's not designed specifically to get a negative reaction, like it's not a trolling review, which this definitely is not a trolling review. This is a, it's a good friggin' review. Then I think that it has a legitimate point of view that if not agreed with needs to be respected. See my favorite comments, my favorite things in the comments of this thing was the people who were talking about the game and how much they loved the game and like their memories of it or their current experience. So happy for you guys to me, by the way, like that's, yeah, that's awesome. And that's the kind of, I guess, positive thing, or just someone who says, I don't really agree with this review, and here's why. That's a great, useful comment. But folks who are attacking the review or attacking the reviewer because their opinion is different from them, I'm sorry, that doesn't contribute anything to the conversation. It shuts it down. It's damaging. Uh, It is fairly pointless, in my opinion. And that, I guess, is just the internet in general in many cases yeah man start a blog write your own review you know like give it a 75 if you want Mm. i don't know i'd probably give it a 60 i you know whatever do your (laughs) own thing and i mean hey like david paid respects to what this game really continues even to excel at which is the the sound and the visuals like he went out of his way to do it actually it's got phenomenal pixel art it's got an amazing score and like if that's um enough for you to kind of like uh, work through the game and like kind of accept its quirks on their own terms. Then like that that's great. Uh, you can enjoy it uh, on those merits. But that that clearly wasn't enough for David, so he gave it a lower score. So it just that's that's the way it kind of evened out, right? Yeah, man. Yes, and I mean there we've had a lot of there have been a lot of controversial games released over the last few months. I mean, just Starfield, for example, uh, also received a tremendous amount of the discourse about that was just a nightmare. Uh, yes. Well, wait, what, what do you call it? it? Uh, yeah. Alex, you called it the discourse dumpster fire. Discourse dumpster fire. Yeah. yeah. Love that. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a pretty accurate statement and it's, we accept it because that's our job. We're reviewers. Um, but again, you can't, review a game based on nostalgia i mean you can but it's not going to have any particular value as a review you can only review it based on your current experience i mean nostalgia can be part of that experience it's just like you know like i I don't know I, i i think that like the main problem here is that 
it sort of sucks to just have your your work sort of like derided in this way uh even when you produce something that like you put a lot of effort into you know Mm -hmm. i don't know i it's a weird thing, right? It, I, I think people should be allowed to tell you that they love this game and disagree with you on the internet. But it's another thing to be like, oh, you're getting paid to write this good review for a game? Or like, oh, this person doesn't know anything. They should be fired from the staff or whatever, which is kind of the like knee-jerk reaction that fans seem to be having sometimes with this stuff. And it's a little ridiculous. Yeah. I don't know. It's very like attacky on the person and it doesn't need to be. Just love the game, hate the game, talk about it. You know? That's the internet for you. But ignoring everything else, it is Secret of Mana's 30th anniversary, and there is a lot to celebrate in Secret of Mana. It's a fantastic uh, three-player, multiplayer game at a time when they really didn't exist. It does have amazing pixel art. It does have ridiculously great music. And yeah, it actually can be a lot of fun. I've had a lot of fun playing Secret of Mana. So I think, personally, there's a lot here to celebrate. Uh, And if you agree with that, awesome, play the game. If you don't agree with that and you played the game, then that's fine too. If you haven't played Secret of Mana, hey, maybe you should. It's in Collection of Mana. You get three Mana games, including Trials of Mana, which is, you know, some consider it Secret of Mana, but better. So I say give give it a download, play them, and find out for yourself. Ultimately, like, a score shouldn't... Like a, a score is reflective of the person who played the game, but it should never be taken as a sign to like dissuade anybody from checking it out. People should check out old yeah. games. Like it, it's awesome to check out old games. You'll find some gems that that appeal to your particular sensibilities. Uh, you'll encounter some really unique design choices that kind of uh, studios are are more averse to taking nowadays. Like uh, the retro games are. There's a vast, vast library of retro games with all kinds of interesting stuff, all kinds of flaws, all kinds of triumphs, and um, it's worth exploring uh, on your own and, and seeing what you like, seeing what's out there. Absolutely. And to anyone out there who's listening, we are going to continue doing retro reviews because we're RPG fan. We love doing retro reviews because we love playing these games. Uh, our love of RPGs and JRPGs is right in our dna it's almost in our name yeah so yeah there will be there will be more retro rpgs and there will likely be more scores that people disagree with both scores that they think are too high and scores that they think are too low i would like to issue a challenge to those of you out there who are a little salty about this go back and play adventure on the atari and let me know if you think that honestly i would consider that game to be an rpg i would i would call that in a very early rpg and let, let me know if that's got all the gameplay trappings that you sort of expect in a modern game and, and let me know if that one's fun to go back and and play maybe it will be for you but um it's tough you know i don't know it can be tough and i mean it's it's going back to for example, point-and-click adventure games have come a long way, and I think that point-and-click adventure games eventually reached a point where they are still eminently playable. Let's call it the LucasArts adventure era. But, like, go back and try to play King's Quest One. Yeah. It's challenging. It's hard. Try using a text parser instead of using a verb mm-hmm. system. It is a challenging situation. Games evolve. And it's not like these games do not have value, both in terms of enjoyment and historical value. For example, if if books, if works of art lost their... Someone today might have a real, real hard time reading Pinocchio. Mm-hmm. But, you know, without Pinocchio, Liza P wouldn't exist. And there are many people who enjoy reading Pinocchio. True. So it's not like it it's not like it loses its value. 
but it might lose some of its cultural significance. Um, but that's just the nature of media. Anyway, so uh, if you want to celebrate our cultural significance, you can find our stuff at rpgfan.com slash shop. Uh, we have a shop now, and we have lots of things that we sell on it, including some new 25th anniversary merchandise coming out uh, that we would just love if you could check out. Uh, if you'd like to support us here at Random Encounter, you can check out some of our past episodes. We've had quite a run the last few weeks uh, of just talking about some uh, some very, very interesting games. I'm going to be off next week. Uh, Zach is going to be here uh, as my temporary replacement, and they're going to be talking about a feature that's coming out on RPG Fan in a few weeks, and I think it's going to be a really cool episode. Uh, but we are not the only podcast here at RPG Fan. We also have Retro Encounter. So last week we had uh, part two of our deep dive into Breath of Fire Dragon Quarter, and then next week we're going to be continuing with the dragon theme, and it's going to be an episode focused on Dragon Quest. Uh, which, if you are not aware, Solosi likes Dragon Quest. Um, we also have Rhythm Encounter, which is RPG Fans Music Podcast. And last week was an episode focusing in on town themes. It was technically Town Themes Part 2 because there was one a good many years ago, but this one had some really interesting themes that I never heard before. Uh, so I, I it's, it was a really solid episode. And the next week is going to be something a little bit different. It's going to be focusing on, uh, well, dance music, particularly at the electronic variety. So that's going to be cool because RPG dance music, awesome. Uh, if you'd like to get in contact with us here, you can fire me off a message at podcast at rpgfan.com. If you have any suggestions for uh, future episode themes or discussion questions, this one certainly raised a lot of interesting points this week. Uh, please, fire it off. We'll acknowledge you. Uh, we'll give you a heads up. And uh, yeah, if you'd like to send me an email, you can do so at jlogan at rpgfan.com. You can also find me on Mastodon at Logan at mastodon.social. But I am not the only person on this podcast with a media presence online. Alex, where can we find you online? Uh, I do not have a media presence online. But if you want to reach uh, out to me, you could do so through email at alexfranicek at gmail.com. Okay, and Noah? Yeah, you can find me in most places at Noapolitan, um, though perhaps I may be departing from my ex Twitter, uh, no pun intended, uh, pretty soon. So maybe I'll be on, I don't know, Blue Sky, Mastodon, something. Something, whatever whatever replaces Twitter or augments Twitter or who knows if who knows if even the concept of Twitter will continue. I guess it'll be interesting to see what happens in the 2024 presidential elections and seeing what platform actually gets some traction when it comes to whatever bad crazy stuff that uh, Trump says. Um, if you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your friends to help us get the word out there and rate us on iTunes or your other podcast player of choice. Uh, again, Noah, Alex, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Alex, it was your first episode on uh, Random Encounter. How'd it go? It was a blast. Thanks for thanks for inviting me on. That uh, was an absolute pleasure having you on. Uh, and to everyone out there listening, whatever you're playing, have fun.